to the Crypt. This is DJ Soulwood of WKNC Raleigh. Thank you for tuning in today. With me in the studio, I have Greg Abate of the Greg Abate Quintet featuring Phil Woods. We're going to be discussing one of his more recent albums. Greg, thanks for joining me on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for calling me, Colin. No, it is my pleasure. It's uh, such an honor to speak with someone with such an illustrious career, especially after having teamed up with Phil Woods. And I'm really excited to grill you on your creative process today. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right. Well, jumping right on into it, getting ready for this interview. I've, I've loved listening to what you've got on your end I and mean, all of the music you've done and the, the different ensembles that you've played with. Wow. Thank you. Uh, most recently, just put out an album with Phil Woods, and that's the culmination of what you've been doing up to this point. I would like to start a little farther back. Yeah. Born in Massachusetts, grew up in Rhode Island, a lot of Northeastern work, but a lot of international performances that add up to be a very impressive career. You've been featured in Tony Giorgiani's Sax Odyssey, Duke Belair's Jazz Orchestra, among others, and a favorite of mine, the Ray Charles Orchestra. I'd like to say, what would you consider was your big break after attending Berklee College of Music? After Charles? Absolutely, yes. Uh, boy, I guess I've been just uh, doing a lot of working with recording in 1990, doing my first recording in uh, New York, and that sort of set me on a catalyst, a catalyst me into a journey of a recording on labels that would, you know, get me known through the country and then get me some, some bookings in Europe. And as a jazz artist, it's always kind of like difficult to find the the work because it's a kind of a minority type of music you know it's just for the it's a specialty that i feel like it's a, it's not really that popular to the masses so those those recordings have helped me to get known more so than it would be if i didn't do them so i thought that was a, a big impact on my career to just do the uh, maybe 18 recordings that i've done since 1990 you know yeah, it is quite an impressive list. You've played in so many influential bands, and now you're leading your own quintet, but with Phil Woods and quartet usually out of the Northeast. Well, yeah, we've done several gigs last year. But we're not. It's a group that I can put together when I can get a booking for it, you know, and they will come. We can put it together that way, but it's not a touring active group, like saying, like, we have numerous gigs coming up, but it's there for the wanting, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I entirely understand. What's it like, since you all obviously have your own musical careers and goals going on, what is it like when you come back together for those uh, sporadic gigs and, and, and calendar dates? Well, it's, it's like a reunion type of thing where we haven't really played more than seven gigs together since the recording, so it's still new. Everything is kind of, you know, we're not really that close as far as knowing everybody's move, you know. It's just uh, getting acquainted with each other every so often so it's like not really a long endeavor you know in the process of like working like say two times a week it was like maybe once a month or twice a month and then waiting like, again several weeks to get together so that so we're not really that familiar with a routine let's put it that way when you were piecing together the album that was released in 2012 on uh, Rhombus Records, the Greg Abate Quintet featuring Phil Woods for our listeners at home. What was it like being in the studio with such two sax powerhouses as yourself and Phil Woods? How did you guys work and collaborate together? Well, I, I always admired him, you know, for many years. I looked at it as, you know, it's a great experience, learning experience, and I felt humbled to be there playing next to him. And he his enjoying playing with me, it uh, was really encouraging because it's, 
it's always great to play with, with great players and to learn. You, you learn a lot from just being there without even, you know, just observing and just picking up all the nuances, you know, and seeing. So I, I really was thrilled with that and even more so playing gigs with him. It's just the vibe that you really got to feed off of each other and, and really listen very, very well. Yes, it was pretty good. We just met that day and recorded. He, he walked in, sat down, and we counted off the first tune and went right for it. I mean, the tunes on this track list are so impressive. Uh, you, you're writing most of them, and Phil is, is featured writing uh, one in honor of Art Pepper, the great saxophonist. How did you two collaborate on the, the creative idea before actually stepping into the studio? You mentioned in previous interviews that he added a lot of his own personal flair to the compositions just to help you out. How did that exactly work? He just suggested leaving out a note here or there or putting a different chord somewhere or you know, just the suggested things from his experience that I thought enhanced my music. It's like uh, sort of editing in his own expertise, you know. For myself, I'm pretty open to someone suggesting ideas, so I'm open to, to things, and I say, well, that, that makes sense, you know, and it made a big difference for me to have that coming from him to put the energy and in, in the thought into caring to make it better, you know, rather than just play and just not say anything, you know, just be there and not put and have any input other than being a hired star on the record, you know. Yeah, I completely understand. So when you were piecing this together, was the, the main idea behind the album to have the opportunity to write most of your own work? Or was it to collaborate with Phil? Or was there something else behind the, uh, the main purpose of the album? To collaborate with him, but I, I wrote most of the tunes that I had already written a lot of those. And I thought it would be nice to play with Phil Woods. And I asked him that he just played on five of them, including one of his. You know, it's the way it worked out. It was a collaboration all the way on those tunes because we emailed back and forth about certain things and we would discuss having the option of changing chord changes or making melodies different to fit the chords, rhythm section suggestions. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You're also joined by three incredible side musicians, Jesse Green on the keys, Evan Greger on the bass, and Bill Goodwin on the drums. What do you consider was the key to that, uh, the openness that's created on this album? It's incredibly open, but still very, very powerful, like on songs uh, Carmel by the Sea. Oh, yeah. You thought that was powerful? I thought it was great to, to play that. And like, in hindsight, I'd like to have played longer, stretched out a little bit more on the <laughs> solos. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's the sax player's problem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it seems like... It would be um, a little bit better to maybe stretch out a little bit on, on the solos, you know? Absolutely. But sometimes the radio stations, like I don't know if you have this situation where you get long tracks and you rather prefer playing shorter tracks for broadcasting rather than playing a 12 or 13 minute piece, you'd probably pick on the CD a six or seven, or you might go for a five minute track. But, you know, to have, you know, more time to. To, uh, communicate with the audience, but I think, don't you agree that some stations play one or two or three in a set, and then that could take up like, you know, 15, 16 minutes, right? With three tunes right in a row, some programmers do that. Others will play a, a tune and then they'll do some talking or they might have some, some space from the music for a while. Oh yeah, absolutely. KNC's is just trying to get the, the good music over the air. So we love what you're putting out. The dynamic that you had in the studio creates such a, a very cool 
but powerful drive throughout the entire album. Does that transfer over to the the few live gigs you said that you all have done together sporadically, or is it entirely different environment when you guys play live? I think it's more up front than the recording. Live is always more more energy type of. I don't know how to put it, but it seems like the recording studio is a little sterile to play in a studio. Although what you're saying is very cool that you get that impression. And I do too, but I think live is a little bit more than of what you're talking about. Most true jazz seems to be that way anyway. Yes. Absolutely. I would like to backtrack a little bit. You grew up in the Northeast, and you teach as an adjunct professor in Rhode Island, if I'm not mistaken. What drew you to that area musically that made you want to call that home, if you, if you do that, call that home? Uh, since you... Well, I was living in California for several years, you know when I left Ray Charles Band and before that, I was brought up here and I missed my family and I, you know, I sort of came home. And then I got, I got into like playing music in the Northeast and going to Canada and, and just bouncing around here in New York a little bit, Boston, Connecticut, New Jersey. And then I would go out to, you know, then I would be flying to different places, working in California or Chicago or Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, you know. So I, I just came back home, sort of gravitated back home. I do travel quite a bit. I go to different states, so I get a, a piece of the whole thing, you know, and, I, and my family's here, so that's why I came back, you know. Absolutely. Since you're later in your career, do you enjoy doing the clinician work that you do for Con Selmer and the adjunct professor work in Rhode Island, or do you still love going abroad and going international as much? Gee, you know, I like what I'm doing because I don't do just one thing, so it it's always different, and you don't, I don't really get tired of music in general, and I never get tired of playing. But teaching, I like the idea of, of teaching at a, little, at a college like a couple of days a week and then having the summer. But then having, during the, the school year, I can go to, you know, I was just in Louisville, Kentucky, doing a workshop for two days in January. And then I was in Wisconsin last weekend doing a jazz festival at a high school and then another day at a high school doing a, clinics and playing with the band, and I'm going to Ohio, as you know, March 6th, and I've got a whole week of clinics with different places, and then I've got, like, also gigs in Ohio and West Virginia, so it keeps it fresh, you know, it doesn't get boring. Sometimes it gets overwhelming because, you know, oh, i got to leave tomorrow, and I'm not really ready to go because it comes up fast, you know, you think, gee, i got, like, two months before I go there, but before you know it, it's here, you know, and then you're not, I'm kind of one of those type of people that don't, like, plan ahead and prepare totally, because I'm, like, kind of, like, last minute, even doing a recording, I'll, I'll practice the stuff, like, you know, maybe the day or two before and try to do it, and I feel like it keeps it fresh, because if you, if you practice something too much, you don't practice soloing, you just practice the melody, you know, it keeps it fresh, so you don't feel like, well, gee... There's no energy, and, you know, I really am com too comfortable with this, so I, there's no edge to it, you know, so that's how I feel naturally. I understand. Right. Yeah, you got to you gotta make sure that you're playing things that are sporadic and, and very, in, very intense, and you don't want to kill the bandstand by over-practicing it, absolutely. Do you play? I do, I do, actually. I'm a trumpet player at NC State. I will ask, since you love doing so much work with students, what is your number one piece of advice when you do your clinician work to up-and-coming artists? Probably cliche, but practice classically, like learn your instrument really well. Don't cut short any of the major scales and minor scales. Play in the harder keys. Practice learning tunes, standards. Listen to people that play your instrument and other instruments. Try to transcribe a few things. Work on some different 
phrases or licks, if you will, and just try to transpose them in different keys. And I just sit with it and like just just enjoy doing something. And like after a while, you get really a lot better quicker because one thing leads to another. You know, you get like say, excited about that. Wow, I did that. No, well, I can do this. Let me try that. You know, and then, but if you just like don't do anything, just play your horn. You know, like without any any focus, that's how you're gonna play. You know what I mean? I understand. Yeah, since you're giving so much great advice to students, who was your primary mentor? Since you played with so many incredible larger ensembles in multiple nations when you're growing up. A saxophonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pick a saxophonist. Well, well, a mentor. I mean, I always listened to Charlie Parker, but I mean, I, he wasn't. I didn't know him personally, but. Sonny Stitt, and um, I love Dexter Gordon and tenor. And I mean, tenor, yeah. Charlie Mariano was a teacher of mine at Berkeley, Joe Viola. Dick Johnson, from the, the uh, leader of the Artie Shaw Band in 86 and 7. He was kind of like a great friend as well. I learned a lot from him. Sax players go on. I mean, like James Moody, Nick Brignola, late Nick Brignola. Richie Cole is a good friend of mine. We played and recorded together in, in the 90s. Lou Tabakin, Don Menza. Earlier on, do you credit any of the specific ensembles that you were a part of as being the most influential in creating your sound as it stands today, or is that more personal work? Oh, the Ray Charles band, I was playing lead alto. Before that, I was like playing in, in rhythm and blues bands and playing in Los Angeles, you know, playing in soul bands. I wasn't really playing jazz, but build up a lot of chops and endurance. My sound grew from playing in a local big band here in Rhode Island, uh, Duke Belair's Jazz Orchestra. It was like 29 years on a Monday night. I didn't play for 29, but I played close to 15. You know, I was sitting there. I was playing alto, and I played tenor chair sometimes. I played the baritone chair. And then when I went with the Artie Shaw band, I learned, you know, I had to focus and really listen because that band was like a different type of vibe where you had to go back in time but still be modern because you can't play like the old, not the old players, but like, how they played it, you know, if you take the music that they played in the 30s, the sax section is going to sound like they did. And then you take a sax section from this present time, and the people that are going to be playing that, if they haven't heard that style, they're going to play totally different. But if they had heard the style, they'll still play different, but they'll have the roots of that music in their personality. So you'll learn from that, you know, listening. If you take someone out of wherever and they haven't heard any music, but you teach them how to play an instrument, you imagine what they're going to sound like. They'll be totally original, but if they don't have any influence from other things, they have nothing to aspire to or to look to become like, you know? So I think the big bands gave me that, to hear all the different players on all instruments and hearing how they phrased, you know, how they moved with the music in their bodies, like they pulsated, they, they were alive with it, you know? Pretty exciting stuff. How is the environment, since this was the 86-87 uh, Artie Shaw Jazz Orchestra was a revival group, what was the real difference between the original recordings that you obviously had heard and what you all were playing live? Well, Dick Johnson was playing the Artie Shaw solos impeccably. Artie loved him. Artie was there in body and spirit. Sometimes you'd be there along with us talking to the audience. But the musicians were a lot younger. They weren't from that time period. So like I'm saying... The music seemed to have more of an, an edge to it, you know, than it did when Artie's band was playing. But you know, we put a little bit more, a modern flair into it, if you will. How did you all do that? For me, I just played with less vibrato. I didn't play, like, with a wide bravado. I played with, like, a medium vibrato. 
I can play a wide vibrato, but I, I'm still trying to figure out where that came from. You know, I mean, it came from, you know, Lester Young and Coleman Hawkins and all those guys, you know. We just don't play that way anymore. The sax sections could uh, put more vibrato if they want to, but, I mean, I, I was, like, playing in a more modern sense. It's not as much of a wave in the vibrato. You get what I mean? I do. Would you say that that area of the big band has matured in its sound? That's a very 40s style of, of vibrato that you're talking about. Definitely. Since uh, the time of your first group, the Channel One Sextet, what made you want to lead your own group again and really focus on your writing after such a long hiatus from band leading? That was 1990. I mean, I was playing in 1987 when I got off the Artie Shaw band. I, I was working more as a soloist and putting bands together as they traveled or recorded. And I was playing in Canada as a soloist. I didn't, I didn't have a band. But when I left Ray Charles' band in the 70s, 74, I put together a fusion band, Channel One. And that was the thing. It was like more of a, a fusion band with jazz chords and like funk and Latin rhythms. But after I left the Artie Shaw band, I had been going on my own. And I, then I started to record live at Birdland in New York. And I had, you know, James Williams and Rufus Reed and Kenny Washington. That was my first recording as a leader. And then I recorded with Hilton Reese and George Mraz. So the next one was like I did a Happy Samba CD with... Mark Sosk and Harvey Swartz at the time, you know, Ed Uribe and on and on. And then I did something with, with Ben Riley, Rufus Reed again, Claudio Roditi, and Kenny Barron. So I've done a lot of things. Like, I put the, these groups together with the record company, and we just go show up and record. So I didn't really have a group that I used all the time. So every group's been different. Follow me? Absolutely. So it seems like you're a, you're a man of many talents, being clinician and teacher at uh, multiple schools and running your own group while you were a soloist and many others. So I got to ask, what is next for Greg Abate? Concerts, recordings, side projects? Give us a little insight. Well, I'm recording a new album on April 23rd. It's a quartet, piano-based drums, Bostonians, Tim Ray on piano, John Lockwood bass, Mark Walker on drums, and myself. I'm going to record all originals. I have a tune of Phil Woods I'm going to record, and I'm going to record All the Things You Are. I reharmonized that and the other seven tunes of my original. So I hope to get nine tunes on the CD. Very nice. Still the same driving bop idea behind it all? I've got some, like, well, there's a couple of, like, modal tunes, a couple of bop heads, three heads of that. You've got a tune I based on, It Could Happen to You. Phil Woods' tune is a bop. It's called Bop and Don't Stop. So that, that tells you what that is. There's a waltz on there and a couple of like modal tunes I'm going to play soprano on. It's going to be kind of different. I, I hope you get a copy of that. It'll be on Wailing City Sound. Well, I look forward to hearing it, and thank you for the insight. I appreciate it, Greg. We're always looking for great music down here in Raleigh. We love it, WKNC. And we really appreciate you coming on the show, Greg, and giving us a little insight to what you're doing, and we wish you the best in your illustrious future. That's really kind, and you're great to call me to invite me on the show. Thanks very much. All right, Greg. Thank you. This has been another edition of The Crypt on WKNC Rock.